Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for Monday, October 12th, 2020. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. Evan Kelly, what are we here to do today? Well, I think that what we're going to do is discuss a very important topic. We're going to draw in a number of different viewpoints and research datum. Ooh. As well as maybe a couple of opinions mixed in, because you know, it's what we do. But our guarantee to you, our listeners, that we will do our very best to keep our discussions within the boundaries of good faith. We are always trying to keep ourselves and our loyal listeners, thank you so much, adequately informed. Yeah. I mean, we we don't know everything. Um, to be pedantic, you said the word datum. But datum is the singular of data. Yeah, I uh, I, I knew that, <laughs> and I tried to, but I still used it as a plural in the sentence. It's not my finest moment. It's not, oh, and I'm deeply ashamed. Man, you 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 reverse the typical pedantry of the of uh, the use of the word datum. But anyway, <laughs> um, we we don't know everything. We are uh, we understand that other viewpoints other than ours can be valid. We're not on the ivory tower, you know, this grand mystical thing made of ivory that we can look down on everybody and see them as, you know, rubes or something like that. But no, we are we are going to explore today. So, Evan, uh, we got a we got a topic for today, don't we? We do. We have a big boy, big girl big person big pants pull them up not wearing a diaper topic today we got we have a belt and suspenders we cannot let these pants fall down um (laughs) yeah so it's the election and there is growing concern that there could be potential challenges to the legitimacy of the result no matter which way it ends up going i think that there are people who are skeptical of a potential Trump victory and people who are skeptical of a potential Biden victory for different reasons. And so we're going to try to unpack all of the dominoes that have been set up, which if knocked over could create a giant clusterfuck in November. Yeah. So one way to, how did, how did we get here? And that is a good question because for a good number of years, while, you know, some people argue that, you know, American democracy hasn't been doing what it's doing, which, you know, has some merits to it. It hasn't tr- been truly democratic for all people for a good long time. That That is true. But, you know, at least within our lifetimes and most people's lifetimes, American democracy has at least had the veneer of being fair that there was a give and take between the two sides and there was enough common ground that it could be seen that everything, you know, was on the up and up, but increasingly so in the modern era, there has been a breakdown of a lot of those kind of guardrails that helped things kind of stay on the level 
and now we're playing a hardball version of American governance and constitutionality where everyone's kind of playing to the fullness of all the rules and it doesn't quite work like that. And I so, want to kind of make a statement here on sort of the notion of democracy, because I think it's relevant. Senator Mike Lee tweeted, America is not a democracy. And that's one of those boom. statements. I know, right? It's 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 factually true, but functionally meaningless, because, yes, we weren't established to be a simple vote on everything and the people control everything type of democracy it's never been that way. And especially for underrepresented groups, it's really never been that way. But we are a Republican democracy, right? We are a democratic form of government. So we are not in the purest political science sense a democracy, but we are a democracy. There has never been a dispute the idea that the people should be able to have a say in how they are governed. That is the foundation of our system. Whether you get pedantic and call it a republic or you just use the colloquial term and refer to it as a democracy. And so fundamental to this is that while you don't people are always afraid of what's called the tyranny of the majority the idea that if you can get 51 percent of the people on board with you you can do whatever unpopular unconstitutional thing you can imagine and obviously we need guardrails against that but if we extend that too far to the point where we say that the majority has no ability to have their preferences reflected in washington we are setting ourselves up for a huge crisis. Yeah. So, and and then also just a side point, a lot of the guardrails of American democracy weren't actual laws or rules or constitutional, you know, writings. It was norms. Mm-hmm. And a fair number of those norms have broken down over the last 20 years. Um so and just the kind of um the polarization that has happened um is is just making a whole lot of things harder so the first area that we kind of want to look at this from is the senate which is inherently on its own the least democratic institution it well the the lesser democratic institution within the legislature yes. i would say the supreme court is the the most undemocratic institution in the <laughs> country but that is besides the point um and and is the next point but anyway so the <laughs> senate so we are we have gotten to the point where so hmm how to how to start this so the senate is a hundred members because a two members are apportioned to each state, no matter how many people they have. So each state is just as represented in the Senate as every other state. Now, the in the Constitution founding times, there was this big row between what ended up being you know, small states versus big states that somehow the will of Virginia was going to like try to dominate the will of Rhode Island, um, which 
feels almost silly in the modern era, but, you know, is really borne out by the dynamics of the politics of the time of the founding of the Constitution. So fast forward 200 years to 200 some years, and we're in a place where it's come to be that we have one party that really maximizes on the people front where winning like in the house of representatives you know they're really good at that and that's the democrats because there is a greater purchase among the general populace for their ideas but then we also have the republican party which is currently structured around winning in a sense the a somewhat bare minimum of people needed because of the senate where the senate is apportioned you know two to each state and there are a lot of states that have very few people where republicans are more popular among or at least majoritarily popular with them so because there's a yeah oh yeah i just want to cut in here and emphasize a couple of key points so when we talk about the senate senate being undemocratic or any body being undemocratic essentially what we're talking about are institutions that don't follow the principle of one person one vote the idea that every american's voice is represented equally to one another. And in terms of the Senate, that's never been true. And it's actually written into the Constitution that it will never be true, that the Senate apportionment is what it is and will continue to be so. In fact, by by the Constitution, the only way you can remove senators from a state is if the state voluntarily agrees to give up their equal representation, which clearly is never going to happen. But it didn't used to be such a big problem for a couple of reasons. Number one is the disparity between populous and less populated states has grown enormously. In 1790, our biggest state was Virginia, and it had only 12.6 times the population of the smallest state, which at the time was Delaware. So it's not great that, say, a Virginian only had one divided by 12.6 of the representation as someone from Delaware in the Senate. But you can understand how, in context, it might be tolerable. Now, California, our current largest state, has 68 times the population of Wyoming, our smallest state. And so a Wyoming senator has the same power as a California senator, despite having the Democratic backing of 168th of the citizens. So that becomes a problem. Another issue in our polarized times is what Joe was talking about earlier, how now there's become this asymmetry where one party doesn't have to appeal to a big group of people. They just have to appeal to a big group of representatives. Um, And this is due to the party polarization, which we've talked about on this podcast ad nauseum. But basically, it's always been a problem that, or not a problem, but maybe a a feature that people in rural areas were overrepresented in the Senate. But during a time when the parties were ideologically mixed, this didn't mean that Democrats or Republicans either gained a unique advantage. What it meant was that farm subsidies were more popular than they otherwise would have. Agricultural 
boosting was a huge part of our national uh, economic plan in a way that it wouldn't be had the Senate not been so powerful. But now that rural areas are skewed so favorably towards the Republican Party, we're in a position where it's not just, oh, we got we give a, a couple extra billion dollars to farmers. Now we're reaching a point where we are under the threat of minoritarian rule for the foreseeable future because of how our government is structured. Right. And so there aren't a whole lot of democracies out in the world that have a unreparate or like such an undemocratic house of the legislature. Um, and even if they do, um, other other countries that have a, you know, a uh, house of the legislature that's based on like, you know, land or something like that, that isn't just by the number of people. It's normally the lesser house. Yeah, but, like in, in the United Kingdom, the House of Lords is functionally meaningless without the power and consent of the House of Commons. Right. But in the United States, the Senate is the more powerful house because of all the extra duties that are um, given to the Senate which I guess leads us to our next thing, because one of the main duties of the Senate is to approve nominees to the Supreme Court. Um, you want to take this? <laughs> yeah, sure. So basically, the Senate has the role to advise and consent when a president nominates a Supreme Court justice. And so... Traditionally, this has meant that the Senate, even no matter who is in power, you know, for the last several decades, there was never this expectation that an opposition party led Senate would abjectly block whoever the opposition president nominated. It, it's just not what had been done, unless there was the case where the nominee was just so extreme like who was it bork joe who yeah, was bork. just like this staunch arch conservative who was never gonna fly um but then in 2016 and actually before we get to 2016 we should just say that it is a little bit strange that how many supreme court justices a president gets to a point is completely random based on yeah. the vagaries of illness to elderly court members or just personal preference for retirement age. So that's what, what when Joe says that the Supreme Court is undemocratic, he's absolutely right because we have no say in the random timing of who is in the Oval Office when a Supreme Court justice dies or retires. And so you can end up with a situation where Donald Trump has only been in the office for four years and ends up getting to fill an entire third of the Supreme Court bench. It's kind of ridiculous when you phrase it like mm -hmm. that, and I believe intentionally so. Um, so in 2016, Antonin Scalia died unexpectedly, and Barack Obama put forth Merrick Garland as his nomination to fill Scalia's seat. Now, Garland, years earlier, had been a name that conservative 
conservative figures had tossed around as someone who would be a great example of an acceptable nominee for a Democratic president to make. Very moderate, you know, still on the left side, but but someone who wouldn't really stir up and foment too much conservative opposition. Well, uh, one of the people who supported Garland was not Mitch McConnell. And so McConnell said, uh, we're not even going to hold hearings on him. And it appears that the reason why this was is because McConnell realized that Garland would win over enough Republicans to <laughs> gain his Supreme Court seat. So the only way to prevent this from happening was just to say, we're not even going to hear him out. And so they kept the Supreme Court seat open for nearly an entire year on the basis that in an election year, the people should have the right to have a say in who fills that seat, which sort of on the merits is not true because as they love to say now, elections have consequences and Barack Obama was elected and it is his duty to fill vacant judicial seats. And so Merrick Garland should have at least received a hearing. But again, like Joe was saying, there's no rule that said that Mitch McConnell had to hold a hearing on Merrick Garland. He wasn't breaking a law, but he was violating a norm and playing what's called constitutional hardball, where he says, hey, the Constitution gives me, the Senate leader, the power to block this nomination if I want to, so I'm going to. Yeah. And I guess, you know, there's nothing at face value that is wrong with that, but if that is how we are going to proceed, then we have to be fully committed to constitutional hardball as the new norm. Mm -hmm. So, for yeah. example, Can't. the oh, Constitution... I, I I wanted to oh, go ahead. get in. Yeah, go ahead, please. So, yeah, so, like, what happened in 2016 basically exposed this flaw in the workings of the Constitution in regard to the Supreme Court, because it had been true in the past that the, the Supreme Court was treated as this nonpartisan institution, where and even in the past where a president would nominate a Supreme Court justice, there was a real chance that that Supreme Court justice that they nominated wouldn't even, um, you know, have make decisions in within the same ideological vein as the person who nominated them. But what happened over the last 10 to 20 years is that the parties have basically decided that, you know, they aren't going to be playing that game anymore. They're going to seriously vet these Supreme Court nominees to make sure that, you know, if they're going to be nominating someone to the Supreme Court, that they're going to at least think on the same terms as they do as a party. Yeah, and there's little there's this little cottage industry that has developed with different uh, political groups on both the left and the right, sort of keeping a track record of rulings by federal judges and people who have aspirations to the court. So now there's this feedback loop where 
judges have to realize that they need to be consistently partisan in order to get a strong recommendation from these groups, which then gets passed on to political leaders like President Trump. Yeah. So, but I just want to say that, so there, I mean, there was this idea that judges were nonpartisan and it was a nonpartisan thing. And that basically if someone was a great constitutional scholar, that they would be, and they were nominated, that they would go through the Senate and basically be unscathed. So like Ruth Bader Ginsburg was nominated with something like 98 Senate votes, which just doesn't happen today. But with the increasing partisan nature of Supreme Court nominees, you know, really ratcheted up the partisan nature of the nomination process. And 2016 is really the first time when that comes to a real head. Um, you know, there is, you know, the confirmation of a Supreme Court nominee under, you know, when your own party um, controls the Senate. But Mitch McConnell really came along and was like, hey, it is not in my political interest to nominate this person. And while the norm may have been to hold hearings and, you know, hold a nominating, you know, uh, committee, then... I just don't need to do that because that could very well lead to Merrick Garland being on the Supreme Court, and I don't want that. So this was the turn. This was like the real turn of the Supreme Court truly being a partisan institution where, I mean, it had been working up to it, but where partisan judges were being nominated and now we truly do have a partisan nominating process going forward. L- let's be clear. The delay on Garland was never about giving the American people a choice. And oh, I he think could that have that's said anything. Yeah. yeah, he could have said anything. The point was he had the power to do it and he didn't want to block. He, he wanted to block Garland. And so he did. That's that's what it comes down to. And because we've seen how quickly they are attempting to get Amy Coney Barrett confirmed to the Supreme Court in a an even more dire electoral circumstance where people have already begun voting in this election. And mm-hmm. again, I, that's not even that bad, honestly, as long as it cuts both ways, because if we're going to play constitutional hardball, you can't then be mad when the other guy does it too. So for example, there is a constitutional process for adding judges to the Supreme Court. Sometimes it's called court packing. And it is absolutely baked into our constitution that it is possible and it is legal. And yet different conservatives like Uh, One of my senators in Indiana, Todd Young, is already up in arms talking about how it's going to erode faith in our institutions Mm -hmm. if Joe Biden were to add Supreme Court justices. And, you know, you can say that the norms matter or you can say the norms don't matter, but you can't say that one set of norms is sacrosanct and the other is violable. You can't have it both ways. And so... I I mean, this is a little bit of a digression from where we're going, but 
it is my hope that if Joe if if Joe Biden is to win and we can, you know, win a, a Senate majority as as Democrats, which I think is less likely than a Biden presidency, um, that he should add justices to the court. He should pack the court. And we should offer statehood to DC and Puerto Rico because it's just the right thing to do to give them a say in the governance that oversees the rules that dictate how they can live their lives, you know? Um, and it's, it's been something that Matt Iglesias has been talking about, Joe, um, where people are afraid, well, if, if Biden packs the court, then won't every president pack the court when they can? And Iglesias's response is, yeah, that might happen, but doesn't it make more sense to say that the circumstances to obtain a Supreme Court majority are having the White House and both chambers of Congress. Isn't that a better system than saying you get a Supreme Court majority if you happen to be in the right place at the right time when a justice dies? Like, yeah. I agree. I think that even if this does start a cycle of continuous court packing whenever one party takes a majority, that's still a, a fundamentally fairer and more democratic way to deal with the Supreme Court. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I am of the belief that, um, you know, Supreme Court justices should, you know, serve 18 year terms and every two years, one of them, you know, is up for replacement. But then, you know, it is also just, I mean, I, I, if you were to describe the previous version of Supreme Court nominating to, you know, someone outside of the country, it, you know, if you just explain it to them, it, it would sound very weird. It's like the the president of one party nominates a officer to a life term that makes decisions about laws and the Constitution and have it be confirmed by a party of differing views. Like it would sound pretty crazy. Like, yeah. why would that party of differing views confirm anybody now that had been the norm in the united states when the parties were less polarized and not ideologically driven and that you know the supreme court justices didn't reliably vote one way or the other once put on the court but now that all those things start to align this means that you know there's going to be increasing hardballness to all of this everyone's going to play by the rules because it can have real stakes now, sometimes I can be a little contrarian and think, you know, the Supreme Court is not as powerful as everybody likes to think of it. Um, there's a great book on it called The Hollow Hope, which I really like. But, you know, if we're going to have this institution be like this, it, you know, it only worked really in the kind of nonpartisan version of it. But as we're seeing a greater partisan nature being applied to the Supreme Court, it's it's going to blow in one way or the other where there's, you know, less norms around it and it could end up being less sacrosanct and less belief in the court. And, you know, it's just it it is an undemocratic institution and that has kind of got to be on the be on its like own ivory tower within the American government where it's kind of shielded from everything else where that's just not the case anymore. 
Yeah, so I want to loop back to a couple of things you said and tease them apart a little bit because it's really interesting. Um, so when you talk about Supreme Court justices, they didn't used to be so reliably ideologically consistent and rule the way that you would expect them to based on the president who nominates them. It's kind of outstanding the degree to which that's true and how even individual justices can sort of change their opinions over time. Uh, and I think if we look at Ruth Bader Ginsburg is a really great example of it. So Ginsburg was a Clinton appointee, right? I believe so. Yes. Yeah. And so when Ginsburg was appointed, you can kind of track her voting record and she, in, in her early decisions, was actually the most moderate centrist member of the court. Like, she was very reliably in the middle, sort of a swing vote on a lot of decisions. And then as the court sort of started to creep to the right, her opinions grew more reliably to the left as a sort of countervailing power in that sense. So absolutely, justices can change their mind. And that kind of ties into the second thing I'm thinking, where uh, I like the, the point you bring up about how the Supreme Court may not be truly as uh, all-powerful as our political rhetoric makes it out to be. And maybe my flavor of that is less uh, the Supreme Court isn't as powerful, although I think there's validity to that. It's just not the the strain of this reasoning that I'm most familiar with, but rather that the sort of the most ideologically extreme judges will not reliably be that ideologically extreme all the time. So for example, when we look at a ruling that went in favor of a more liberal lean, which was, oh gosh, McGirt versus Oklahoma, which ruled in favor of tribal land sovereignty, it was actually Justice Gorsuch who cast the deciding vote in that and sided with the court's liberal justices. So I think it is worth understanding that even with highly partisan judges and a highly partisan court, it is a bit more fungible than maybe we think that it is. Yeah, but the fact that we can kind the idea that we would have this institution that is built up through the political process be non-political is basically shattered in this era like yeah. like the veil has been lifted we are no longer under the belief or plausibly under the belief that <laughs> um that the judge or that the supreme court is just strictly calling balls and strikes Yes. Um, which is the common analogy that was used for it. It it does do ideologically based work. And, you know, if one side or the other is able to influence more, they're definitely going to take it like there. You know, people are up in arms about you know, even the mention of court packing, which has not been confirmed nor denied by the Biden uh, campaign. But. There was real talk <laughs> uh, along Republicans um, leading up to the 2016 election that there would just be an eight-person Supreme Court if Hillary Clinton won the presidency. That's that, true. That, they, I mean, they were going to, it, it sounds weird to unpack the court, but... Um, yeah, they would just leave this vacancy open for the entire time. 
and that's that's norm breaking as well. Um, yeah, I think that's sort of where these most heated and angry discussions about the Supreme Court are coming from, at least within the public discourse about it, is that people on both sides are upset about either a violation to the norms or a threat that someone will violate the norms. And I think the more healthy way to deal with it is just to understand that we, we can't put the genie back in the bottle and we're not, no, neither party is going to follow these norms anymore and we should all get used to it. Right. So, so the theme of today's podcast is democratic legitimacy and the Supreme Court was able to maintain democratic legitimacy, at least in the eyes of the people, when it was seen as this non-ideological game and both sides, you know, just kind of did their part in it. But we're to a point where it is now partisan. And but the fights that occur with the Supreme Court cannot be meaningfully expressed through political engagement. So there needs to be a change to how the Supreme Court works where two opposing sides can meter out their differences in a way that seems fair to either side because right now it does not seem fair. And in and it's just you know the the whole point of de- democratic legitimacy is that someone you disagree with can through a certain set of circumstances affect a change that you don't like but you accept that change because they went through the process and yeah, right that's now a really good way to describe it yeah and there's a great feeling now that the process under which the Supreme Court is staffed is not a fair process. So each party is pushing whatever levers it can to make it at least in some way get their tack for the other, you know, or tack for the other side's tit, you know. Go back and forth. Other side's tit. That's the cold open. Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I mean, some people place this current Supreme Court, you know, uh, squabbling on 2016. Some people put it on 2013 when, you know, the 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 Democrats undid the filibuster for uh, Supreme Court. Non-Supreme yeah, it's actually uh, yeah, non Supreme Court judicial nominees. Yeah. yeah. And then other people put it at when the Republicans got r- rid of the blue slip rule, which allowed for uh, senators of the uh, states that were judged by a district court to have a say in their district court. And then, or district court nominees, which got was gotten rid of. And then, you know, some people even put it as far back as Bork, um, his rejection within the Supreme Court. Some people saw that as very unfair that, you know, he was basically shut down as far as it was, as far as his nomination goes, that, you know, there was just the 
expected norm that, you know, a president could nominate basically whoever they were, whoever they wanted, and that they would just be confirmed. And that broke the norm. So this whole escalation with the Supreme Court has been a long time coming, but it's really reaching ahead here where a you know somewhat beloved figure of the Democrats, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, happens to die within extreme closeness to the election, which was the storyline from the 2016 election taken to a much greater extreme in, you know, in a perfect hypocrisy, you know, uh, frame that, you know, and, you know, conservatives believe that, you know, the Supreme Court has been liberal for so long that both sides are, you know, trying to do whatever that they can to whenever whatever power they can through the Supreme Court. And it's just coming to a head like right now, along with everything else. Yeah, there's a few points that I want to make. The first being that another way that I like to think about the concept of democratic legitimacy broadly is that you want a system where not everyone necessarily agrees with the outcome, but everyone agrees with the process that leads to that decision. And then... I think it is worth noting, as Joe has very eloquently stated, there's a lot of grievances on both sides for the violation of norms that has led to this state of hardball. You know, conservatives also like to point to the Kavanaugh hearings as somehow violating some norms and being some absolute degradation of the process, which I don't agree with. I think that we had a credible accusation of sexual assault against someone who was vying for a lifetime appointment on the biggest court in the land and even if you don't eventually find enough evidence to negate his confirmation i am i'm glad that we at least took the time to hear the evidence in open court and i think kavanaugh acquitted himself very poorly during those hearings but there's been a lot that the democrats have done that has rankled republicans as well and so it is not strictly a partisan issue but what i think is true in my eyes, is that the the Merrick Garland play is the most flagrant example of norm violation to me, the one that rubs me the wrong way the hardest. Um, but either way, like I am, I'm definitely of the opinion that it's it's in the past, and now we just got to buck up and play the same game, basically. Because as much as we hate Mitch McConnell, he didn't break a law, he didn't do anything illegal. Uh, he didn't if anything, really even <laughs> he played the game more logically. Yeah, exactly. If you know, he didn't even really do anything immoral besides making up that phony baloney reasoning about giving people a say in it. So that's a lie, which I guess is immoral. But the <laughs> outcome really, is not I mean, really immoral. I mean, really, that you know, he could have. <laughs> He could have just said that I was not going to nominate someone, but then, you know, all of the Republican senators have to go on the, sh- you know, whatever 10 shows they appearances that they have to do a day, um, which seems to be the rule. But um, <laughs> I mean, they have to say something. And that was at least a plausibly popular, like just not seen as totally evil thing so i mean that's what they went with but i mean if it had been seen as broadly popular of just we're not going to nominate the you know the 
you know, the nominee of someone against the party. I mean, that's essentially what they did. And it does in a way make sense. Um, I just hated that, you know, <laughs> it happened, but yeah. you know, and then so. the last thing that I want to hit on here with the Supreme court is something that you mentioned about how there seems to be this conservative grievance that the courts have been too liberal for too long. And I think that it comes down to this complaint that I hear about conservatives being mad that liberal judges quote unquote, legislate from the bench. And I think that that that's really sort of a bullshit accusation, right? Because it kind of comes down to this idea that, you know, the conservative justices are just calling balls and strikes, but the liberal justices are trying to be more active in, in creating policy. And the truth is, both sides are going to have their ideology affect their rulings. And pretending that there's an asymmetry there that uniquely disadvantages conservatives is just so disingenuous to me. I mean, originalism is just as made up. Yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> like, if we're going to go down that path, I mean, the fact that you could understand some collective idea of what the tr- the founding fathers meant, where instead, you know, they all had different things that they meant in the creating of the Constitution where, you know, what we ended up with was what they could all agree on and not so much the purest, like, like the way, I, I mean, people have this idea that the founding fathers got together in Philadelphia and one guy set up and said basically the entire constitution for all the reasons <laughs> that people argue it. And then everyone in the hall went here, here, and they just enacted it. Like it was fought over. There was mm-hmm. tons of debates. Lots of people had lots of different wishes for what they thought the government would be. And to think that some like there is some sort of collective truth to what they wanted things to be is a farce. And precisely, I agree 100%. And that we should use whatever that collective idea that you think that they had to apply to current events that are happening today that could not have in any way been thought about by the founding fathers because of their antiquity it, it, it to me is also a farce so i mean it can cut both ways i mean i can understand vol- some sort of validity in these sort of things but to claim that only one school of constitutional interpretation is valid and then another isn't is is the truth it's bonkers yeah like I, and <laughs> you go ahead yeah go ahead oh um i was just gonna say that you know jefferson himself probably thought that the constitution would have to be rewritten every couple decades or so you know there's no nobody really thought that this would be etched in stone per se obviously we want the the principles and the ideals to carry forward but you know um i i just i really i really liked your your analysis there G- yeah. good work so so Feel free anyway. to transition now yep yeah yeah um so so we the of this crisis we're building up. So there there's the Senate, the undemocratic institution and in the legislature of the government or of the US government. Then we have the Supreme Court of the United States, which is a happenstantial undemocratic institution with increasing levels 
of of salience of partisan divide of this is the battleground under which the politics happens where you know more so than in the past you know just legislation that you know uh these the legislature makes goes up for review like we're we're talking about you know maybe the supreme court just striking down the affordable care act over just some vague idea that one sentence is it in it is unconstitutional and that means the whole thing is unconstitutional but that's not the conversation that we're having but so to ratchet up the circumstances even more, we go to the Electoral College, which is once again the mode for electing president in the 2020 election, even after I made a video with a scathing review of it <laughs> in 2017, but not everybody's come along. <laughs> it's um, a good video, though, for those of you who haven't seen it. Thanks. But um, link, so, link it in the show notes. Yeah. So how how does this ratchet things up again? Well, so the electoral college is this system that awards votes to states and not to people. So every other election in this country which was decided by the Supreme Court of the United States that it be like this is that everyone adheres to this idea of one person, one vote. And that means that, you know, every time you elect a governor, it's just the most people, you know, they have an election for the governor in the state and the person who gets the most votes wins. Not for the Electoral College. The Electoral College apportions these votes to states in accordance of the number of senator, you know, senators and members of the House of Representatives that the state has, with three also being given to the District of Columbia. So this means that the malapportionment of the Senate, where everyone just gets two senators um, for each state, no matter the population, also translates into the Electoral College, where the more sparsely populated states are given a greater uh, power within the Electoral College. Combine that with what we mentioned earlier, the, um, the advantages that the Republicans have in the Senate due to the nature of them aligning with the interests of the people who hold these, um, the power, you know, the disproportionate power within the Senate and or electoral college uh, vision, you know, this gives them an edge where it is possible for the winner of the electoral college and therefore the presidency could be the person doesn't necessarily have to be the person who won the most votes in the presidential election. And Donald Trump did that in 2016. He lost the popular vote by about 3 million votes. 
you know, it the, it had ha- last happened with uh, George Bush versus Al Gore, but that was a near what, like, how however many votes, 500,000 votes, and that was a small enough error where people just kind of brushed it off as a fluke. But Trump won by three, you know, lost by three million votes, but won the Electoral College. And there's a real fear that we could come back and do that again this time. Yeah. And when we especially when we think about democratic legitimacy, again, sort of building on what we've been talking about already, um, we have to have confidence that the person who the people want to be the president ends up as the president. And it just, you know, it, it, it hasn't always happened like that. Democrats have won six out of the last seven popular votes for the presidency. And yet they've only claimed the White House in four of those seven elections. And you kind of start to wonder how how long are the people going to put up with this if this happens again? If Democrats win seven out of eight elections but only gain power half the time, can can people live with that? Are people okay? It's like what we talked about earlier. Even if people don't agree with the outcome, are they okay with the process that leads to that outcome? And a process in which the way we elect the president constantly subverts the will of the populace at large, I don't think that's something that a lot of people, and myself included, are gonna be are gonna be able to say that we're okay with the process that produces that that result. Right, and you know in the fantastic video that I made, uh, basically what it comes down to is that the electoral college was more of an afterthought of the founding fathers and that it was more of an 18th century solution to 18th century problems where it wasn't a aspirational look at, you know, how to elect a president. And at the very and at the time, doing a popular vote election would have been very hard to um, administer at that time. But mm. we're, and, and they had never envisioned the scenario or even thought it would be good that a a minority could possibly elect the president. That was never a thought. That was never a feature like some people like to claim it is or uh, a uh, protection of the minorities. Um, That's just simply not the case. You have the Senate for that. You also don't need it in the Electoral College uh, or in electing the president. I mean, the president is. Go ahead. Oh, just something that Ezra talks about in his pieces about the the filibuster is that the United States already has more governing bodies with the ability to veto legislation than any other advanced democracy in the world. Like it Mm -hmm. it is a legitimate concern to worry about this so-called tyranny of the majority, but we are so far beyond that being the most pressing issue within our specific manifestation of democracy right we we've gotten to the point where the fear of the majority is almost so great that you know in this kind of paranoid partisan era that we are in that it almost seems illegitimate for any party to do anything even if it secures a majority um, yeah which is that 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 kind of is what it comes down to right 
Do you fear a system in which a majority is able to pass something that you don't necessarily agree with? Or do you fear a system in which we cannot solve any problem ever? And I know which way I fall on that. And I I believe I know which way you fall on that as (laughs) well. Right. But anyway, the Electoral College, it is just because in this era, we now have these parties that align with each other. Um, to, you know, especially with the Republican Party, to eke out a win without having to win the most votes, that it is really becoming an apparent issue. And, you know, I believe in getting rid of the Electoral College. You know, I, I in the video I made, I, you know, had some cop-out answer, but, I, you know, I basically believe now that, you know, it should just be a pluralistic vote like every other election is in this country but mm-hmm. it i can also understand why the other side you know republicans would be quite wary to get rid of it because that has been the rule the entire time it has been the system the entire time and they are able to play the game and win mm-hmm. um you know, and it's also just weird that in this era that we kind of accept like there is a portion of the population that accepts that the uh, electoral college is a good thing, because for a long period of time, it was just kind of seen as this weird antiquated thing that we did along with the vote. But the popular vote was the real thing. Mm-hmm. Like. You know, we ha- there's a lot of discussion in the kind of polling and forecasting world of, you know, of the U.S. presidential election where it's like, well, you know, we have these national polls, but then, you know, we you all you have to take into account to the state polls because the states are the ones who elect the president. Actually, you can infer some from the national polls, but not exclusively from the national polls. And from in the last, you know, in, you know, really before 2000, it was just believed that, you know, if someone was up in the national polls and the overall general popularity over the course of the whole nation, it was generally believed that that person would win the election. Whereas we know now that that is not necessarily the case. Mm-hmm. So there is a chance that this could happen in the next election uh, because it happened in the last one. And there is and because a real... the underlying dynamics which made it possible have not changed. Yeah. And there's a real possibility that the difference could be even more stark, um, you know, because I believe that the states that have the greatest number of people who are um, driven by negative partisanship towards Trump, meaning they want to engage in politics because fuck him, that that's not me saying that that's them saying that, but also kind of me. But um, (laughs) it's that it's the states that already vote for him in such great numbers So if there's even crazier turnout in California, New York and Illinois and just rack up the votes for Biden, but, you know, Biden doesn't end up doing as well in Michigan, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Florida and Ohio and all these other states where he ends up losing because, 
you know, the the negative partisanship isn't as high there. This could lead and to losing. Sin- yeah. And importantly, losing narrowly as opposed to states where he wins decisively. Yeah. And, you know, and it, it's just leading to a point where it, it could be it could be really bad. Um, just just in general. So we we move into the final realm of the the amplifying of the stakes of this election that's happening in what three weeks, and this has been the delegitimizing delegitimization of um, I have down mail in ballots. But just kind of the efforts to subvert democracy in general, I think, is a huge issue coming into this. So we decided on this uh, topic two weeks ago, and this was when Trump was going on a real tear against mail-in voting, which feels like months ago with everything mm-hmm. that has happened in the last two weeks that has you know, transpired. But the fear is, is that because of COVID-19, we, there is a large number of of people who are going to want to vote by mail in order to preserve their health instead of voting in person, which is the traditional method. And what has happened is that there has been a partisan politicization of mail-in voting, where Trump, uh, you know, depending on the day of the week, you know, if people are mail-in voting for him, he's great, but mail-in voting for Biden is corrupt. But (laughs) it is at least being touted that in some way mail-in votes aren't valid and the Republican Party and or Trump administration is in lawsuits in many um, states to try and curtail the ease of voting by mail and trying and just in general governments trying to do what they can to prevent the ease at which people can vote notably places like texas where um, the governor mandated that each county would only have one drop box for mail-in ballots where you could, you know, instead of putting it through the mail, you could bring it to this drop box and it just goes directly to the government. Well, he tried to make it so that each county only had could could only have one drop box, not ensuring that they have at least one drop box, that there was a maximum number of drop boxes that could occur. So a county of 130 people would have as many drop boxes in it as a as a county with four million people in it. This is not a hypothetical. Harris County, which contains Houston, has about 4.3 million people in it. And yeah, that is the efforts of Abbott is to make sure that they only have one drop box available to them. Yeah. So the Supreme Court has um, struck that one down for now. But it is all of 
all of the factors before, especially the Supreme Court, have turned this into a really tough fight where it is believed, uh, whether rightly or wrongly, that if the country were more democratic and that small d democratic, you know, just kind of of the ideas of democracy, that more people voting, that greater uh, access to voting would inevitably lead to the Democratic Party receiving more votes. I don't necessarily think that's true, but at least that's the idea that is held up. So we now have a situation where large you know, Republican parties across the country and the president at the top of it are trying to delegitimize just voting in general as a way to prime up that some results may not be valid. And this is especially striking with mail-in ballots where for whatever reason, through the powers that be, states with mail-in voting a lot of them won't start counting them until the night of the election. And counting a mail-in ballot is more difficult than counting just a normal ballot where the verification of who a voter is for an in-person vote happens when they vote, whereas the additional verification of someone who votes by mail is done when the vote is counted. And it also takes time to open up the envelopes and all that stuff, which takes, you know, it may seem trivial when you open up one piece of mail. But when you're trying to open, you know, count millions of ballots, um, that adds a lot of time. So because these states won't start counting the ballots until Election Day, that means that they have a huge can at times have a huge backlog of votes that need to count. So it could be very well the situation that on election night, it could look like one candidate. It it could look like one candidate is the winner based on the in-person vote and the the mail in ballots that had been counted. Whereas over the course of the next few days, when all the mail-in ballots are counted, it could be seen that, you know, the other person is the winner, which, you know, on its face value, if we have it just kind of as a thought experiment, shouldn't really matter. But we have gotten wed to the idea that on the same night, of the election that just happened during that day, we figure, we learn the results. We, it's all tabulated and we understand who won. But it's most likely that this election, it there's a very real chance that it'll take a couple days to truly know who will happen. But with the um, delegitimization of the further counting of mail-in ballots and, you know, that, you know, they may not even be valid to begin with as a means of voting, that we're heading to a situation where uh, this, just the whole thing could be um, delegitimized, where the Electoral College has a greater probability of seeming illegitimate to Democrats, the coming vote by mail issue 
is coming down as a illegitimacy to the Republicans. And that's just, it's been escalating and escalating. And, you know, the, just as many plans to subvert vote as possible. And it's just very concerning, but it's coming to a head here once again, along with all the other things. (laughs) As if there wasn't enough going on. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. What are your thoughts, Evan? Um, so there's a gosh, there is so much to pick apart here and uh, I'm not sure really how to categorize it all, but I do want to maybe inject a little bit of good faith into who the um, Republican claims not to not. I mean, it's, it's all in good faith. Right. But I, I, just a little bit more credibility to their idea that somehow there's a difference between absentee and vote by mail. I don't think they're articulating it very well because functionally those are used as the same thing. But I think they are trying to refer to the difference between the traditional system where people request absentee ballots and then they can send them in versus trying to build up a whole new infrastructure to make sure that everybody is given a ballot through the mail. Now, that being said, no matter which one you're talking about, and we should be worried about trying to scale up quickly. I mean, that is a legitimate concern. Yeah, but either I way, could, if, their, if their articulation was that... The states that build up vote by mail operations did it over many years and did it with careful consideration and that it should be the state should be given adequate time and resources to do this. And we just don't think at this time that they have those. Then we don't agree with states going forward with these initiatives. I could accept that. Yeah, that's sort of the best version of that argument, right? But either way, and I in, and I could even believe I, I even somewhat believe that because yeah. um, that it, it is true. <laughs> <laughs> but either way, when we look at the actual rate of flagged ballots that came in absentee or mail in in 2016 and 2018, it's 0.0025%. So even if we saw a 100-fold increase in alleged voter fraud, we would still be able to operate the election with over 99% confidence. So that, you know, it's tenuous at best, the worries, especially when Trump says about, talks about things like ballots being discarded or ballots being sent to people twice, like um, he's, he's complaining about, go ahead, yeah. Or there just seems to be a vague assertion that anyone who works for the government is a Democrat um, (laughs) or runs government institutions is a Democrat, where there are plenty of states that are run by Republicans and plenty of Republicans who run the election commissions of different states. Like I listened to an episode of the 538 podcast where they talked with the Republican commissioner of elections in Ohio. And, you know, he was talking about mail in voting and all these things. And, you know, there was a bit of, you know, you know, some allaying of the, uh, you know, partisan fears that the National Republican Party, you know, espouses, but was much more grounded in fact and you know whatever small specifics not the like some big grand scare tactic 
So there are definitely Republicans who run elections. It's, you know, while the uh, the Democratic Party believes more in government institutions, that just doesn't mean that everybody in government who does anything of value is a Democrat. Yeah. And uh, just to kind of pick that apart even a little bit, I do believe it's true that Democrats do believe more in institutions of government, but I don't think that was necessarily always true. I mean, it was always true to a degree, but I think it's getting starker now, right? Like Democrats and Republicans used to be kind of uh, have, have, I guess, ultimately pretty similar visions. They just kind of disagreed about the speed of progress more or less. And it was really the libertarian party that was more about, you know, let's really restrict the scope of government. And now I feel like there that 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 mantle of the libertarian party has really been taken up more and more by the mainstream conservatism. But that's really not germane to the broader conversation. Um yeah, I think that there's a lot that the president is doing with his rhetoric and highlighting vague instances where things have not gone perfectly to make fraud seem a lot more widespread than it is and also he is the one who is saying we need to have results by election night he's not saying why we need to or why that it matters to have the results on election night but i feel like he is him and his team are the ones who are pushing most fervently to make sure that the person who comes out ahead on election night remains the legitimate winner, regardless of what later counted ballots show. Well, and the Trump talking about the specific cases of voter fraud, it's kind of like the Fox Newsification of politics where Fox News is very good at taking a story that happens in one place at one time and trying to build it up like it's a thing that's happening all over and we just mm-hmm. don't realize it. Like, I, you know, I, I caught a glimpse of Fox News the other day and Tucker Carlson was going on a bit about how a teacher reprimanded a student for um, seeing Donald Trump as like an idol. And this was like, I don't know, maybe an eight year old. So, you know not knowing really what's going on and goes into this thing. And I'm like, you know, I don't think this is a thing that's happening all over. I think this is one teacher doing one thing that maybe isn't right and not generally agreeable with, but that's but you're not right. it, like it gets everything. Spun from, it gets spun from this one case into uh, Democrats control our schools. They're indoctrinating our children. They hate Trump for no reason. And they, they're really good at just sort of extrapolating from a singular datum. We were, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bringing it back. <laughs> we were we were able to find one instance. But don't you feel like this is probably happening everywhere? Um, and that's essentially what Trump is doing with these cases, you know. Oh, man. So in Pennsylvania, there was an incident where they found, you know, nine ballots in a trash can. And that was because there was an issue where a uh, contract worker on his first day working. He was brand new. Yeah. And it was immediately reported 
through the chain of command that was supposed to be due, you know, would be reported to in the circumstances for an issue like that. And it got spun that there was like this cover up and that, you know, the the Democrats were trying to get rid of votes for Trump where everything was done. Kind you know, the contractor messed up, but it was his first day and it was all reported. It wasn't like, you know, someone was was very above dumpster. And or there was like some mail was, you know, found in a ditch in Wisconsin. And there was some idea that there would be a whole bunch of absentee ballots in there that just wouldn't be counted because the mail was in the ditch because maybe somebody threw it in there. And it turned out there weren't any absentee ballots in there, um, which, you know, it would still be a concern if there was a whole bunch of you know, a whole bunch of absentee ballots were thrown into a ditch. But there just wasn't. Um and this is and and this is the weird threat that comes with voter fraud or people's fear of voter fraud is that because some people can envision some idea that it's easy to do they believe it's happening widespread but there's no way to know if there is voter fraud and that it can be happening massively under the radar without anybody knowing but with the decentralized nature of U.S. elections and the amount of players involved that it would take to do a big voter fraud like that, that's on the scale of millions that would be required to do the election. It's just hard to cover something up like that. Um, That's always, I think, one of the funniest things about Trump's claim that he only lost the popular vote because there were millions of illegal ballots cast in California because let's say you did want to go through the trouble of casting millions of illegal ballots to try to juice the results. Why would you do it in a state like California where it literally would have no impact on the electoral college? Qui bono? Yeah. Nobody benefits from having illegal votes in California that were never proven even to a remote extent. It's it's absurd to me. Yeah. Um, but, um, voter fraud is pretty difficult in the United States. And then there's like this belief that, you know, postal workers will just take stacks of ballots and fill them out for Democrats. Um, there's more security in (laughs) ballots, in mail-in ballots than people realize. Like, you know, you have to sign it and then that signature will be, um, tested against or, you know, in some states will be looked at against, you know, a reference signature that you have. And there are like um, numbers that report, you know, what, you know, it has to say that it's been delivered and go through all, you know, the amount of fraud that would have to happen for um, for voter fraud to happen like that would be have to be a wide scale issue. And if it came to, and that it, it would most likely be found, um, mm-hmm. somewhat easily, um, and 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 also the election, almost every election result in the United States is audited to a pretty high degree, whether it be by government institutions or by journalists or nonprofit organizations, where they will comb through 
you know, the voters, the votes received by who, you know, every ev- after every election, there's some news article about however many dead people, you know, voted <laughs> or, you know, whatever, whatever suspect things are going on. So it's not like we all just vote. Everybody packs it up and then it's like, well, that was good. Um, these things are examined to a high degree because democratic legitimacy is such a um you know it is a threat and people you know in order to live in a democratic society you have to believe that the democratic institutions are legitimate that's mm-hmm. the whole thing and there's and a lot of people Trump's who poll make, watchers yeah. to come in and help too yeah <laughs> he took a real thing that he could have actually said and turned it into a bad thing like yeah. he could have said, "Hey, you know, go and volunteer to be a poll watcher, or volunteer to be a poll worker to help make sure that this, you know, uh, that this election goes by swimmingly." And he's like, "No, just show up and watch people vote." Yeah. And yeah, remember, um, you know, don't be intimidated. You have the right to your vote. Typically, you have the right to a secret ballot as well. There shouldn't nobody should be able to look over your shoulder while you are voting. Um, but I do think that this kind of sparks the the part of the show that this may have been building to is that with so many building institutional problems that are leading to perhaps a crisis in democratic legitimacy, as well as deliberate attempts to make people feel unsafe voting or otherwise feel disenfranchised and depress the vote. Joe, what is your voting plan? I know that you are in a somewhat precarious position moving states so close to the election. Yeah, so I'm still trying to figure that out, um, actually. Um, There is a little bit of comfort being that I live in the state of Illinois Um, that, you know, at least for president, I'm pretty secure in what the state's vote is going to be. So if it ends up being that I am not able to figure this out, then I am not as concerned about what my effect my vote would have had. But I'm still trying to do everything that I can to vote. It does seem now that in my situation that if I am able to get to the point where I would be able to vote to register to vote I would have to do it when I register and that would have to be in person so that's essentially what's going to happen because of the state of Illinois rules about registering to vote within the month of the election um so that's how that's looking for me. How about you? So the state of Indiana has already opened early voting, but it has to be done at the central city county government building, and that's not convenient for me. So they're mm-hmm. opening a couple of additional in-person early voting places later in the month. Um, so the one that's by my house opens on October 24th. I'm judging a speech tournament. So on October 25th, Lindsay and I are going to vote early in um, in our closest early voting location. Mm-hmm. 
Just yeah. going to get it done. So, Joe, do you think do you think people should have to register to vote? No, that's kind of come popped up on the left. I agree. Um, um, you know, you can keep all the same safeguards in place to make sure that people don't vote twice. But registration is just like another hoop to force people to jump here, through for here's no my real plan. Benefit. Here's the Joe Hicks plan. So there is a lot of hoopla about um, voter ID, making sure that people have an ID. But um, let's just say if let's have an election where a system where you don't have to register to vote. But if you have any government issued ID, you just have to present that to vote without having to register and you're able to vote. Can you know, I could and, and we just make it so that people are able to get their valid government issued IDs and that wide swaths of, you know, every government ID are included in it. None of this stuff where you can't use a student ID at a college or you can't use your public housing ID, which just seems especially nefarious. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I've been <laughs> I've been, uh, you know, working on registering to vote um, in this state. And boy, are the documents used for registering very tied to like home ownership and vehicle ownership. So all the things that you like involved in home and or vehicle ownership are very easy to use for um you know, registering to vote. But if you don't have those, then it gets trickier um, Mm -hmm. to register to vote. But I really don't think registering to vote. I mean, registering to vote only makes sense in a situation where there are a large number of peoples who would otherwise not be eligible to vote. And that makes sense in the American context because there is a long history of not everybody being eligible to vote. But this this is not the case. Essentially, everybody above the age of 18 gets to vote. And at this point, there are more people who it it would be more it would be easier to have a system that makes up, you know, makes it a process for people who can't vote instead of making it a process for everybody who can't vote. Yeah. Um, Um. So um, I really believe that voter registration shouldn't be a thing. And if we could de-escalate the politics on like this is how like I remember in college I had a TA who was from Norway or something like that. One of, one of the Scandinavian countries. And he was like, yeah, I just got my my ballot in the mail. And it's just even if I was in person, all you would need is your ID and there's no registering and you just show up and vote. And I'm like, you know what? That makes total sense. I mean, <laughs> <That's> so much better. <laughs> I mean, if if you get any sort of government ID, you <laughs> I mean, it would basically ensure that, you know, you are who you are, that it goes through whatever checks and like especially like a student ID at a college, like you have your picture and if you're at that college, you are living there. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You don't necessarily need the address, but you are indeed living there for that. So it would just make sense to have a system like that. But I want to get into a scenario 
kind of what the worst case scenario of this election would be with all of these issues coming together. A situation where come election night, there are a couple states where the vote is close. And these votes are close because of mail-in ballots waiting on those to be counted. And these states end up being the deciding factor of who wins in the electoral college. So there is, (laughs) and it could even be to the fact where, um, you know, Trump would win even though he has fewer votes overall. So it would be a situation where there is continued counting on votes that have been cast but done by mail. There's a lag. And these votes decide the outcome of the Electoral College. And then there is legal matters that are, you know, suing essentially on some grounds to stop the counting in some way of mail-in ballots because they, you know, some, some reasoning. And then that goes up to the Supreme Court where Amy Coney Barrett is on the court and three justices that were nominated by Trump are on the court. And it could possibly decide the election in a way a la Bush v. Gore. Like, that is the nightmare scenario. (laughs) (laughs) And it ain't a super great thing. And it would, you know, no matter what, it would almost... it. The country would not come out of that very great. Um, yeah. Because tensions would be so unbelievably high. You know, the real wish for this election is that whichever way it goes, it's pretty conclusive. Yes. That, that there isn't a whole lot hanging in the balance. That it just falls one way, whichever way yeah, that, that is. We just want to make sure that there's not a lot of hanging chads. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. You know, I think if you could go back, you know, it's like, what would you do to go back in time to really change history for the better? Wh- what is it? I Go back and, you know, like voice an opinion or get on the board of elections in what, like Palm County, um, Florida, to just make sure that the ballot design is more logical and so fewer people yeah. vote for Ralph Nader than um, by accident when they meant to vote for or Al Pat Gore. Buchanan. Yeah. Pat Buchanan, yeah. Like, yeah. just go and do that. The whole thing's avoided. Like, and you could be super stealthy about it. It's not like I'm going to shoot the president or anything like that. Um, just something mm-hmm. small. Just, uh, completely unnoticeable no one would ever know just go in and change you know do something to change the ballot design a little bit (laughs) in one county and it's all very different from there on out but anyway 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 so that's the nightmare scenario and any any part of the nightmare scenario comes to fruition that's also bad but that's like all the eggs in one basket but mm-hmm. even one egg on its own is is not great either. 
Yeah, I mean, even if this doesn't all come to fruition, I don't think things are going to be good come November. I don't think that either person who loses is going to have a supporter group who is just like, okay, well, we can walk away. Like, the stakes of this have been pumped up so, so high that uh, shit's going to be bad. Yeah, I mean... Under most other elections, there has not been as great a threat of illegitimacy. Like, through kind of a fifth risk model of looking at things, the Trump administration has really taken a whole lot of things that on a normal circumstance have a one in a thousand chance of happening and turned them into scenarios that have like a one in 20 or one in 10 chance of happening, like Mm -hmm. still very unlikely to happen, but way more likely to happen than they used to used to be. Mm -hmm. And what's just happened now is that all the chance it, all these different scenarios that we laid out, all these different conf, you know, factors that are coming together is leading to a scenario where there is a greater chance than ever that this election will seem illegitimate by a large number, large swath of the population, and that there could be some sort of retaliation that is accompanied by that. And that I, I you know, in my good faith way, to say that it cuts both way, not always in the best good faith way that I, I see as truly valid, but it is certainly seems valid to the different groups. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, this is our, our, uh, our legitimacy crisis democracy dies in a podcast you know um (laughs) (laughs) so um yeah um not super not super optimistic evan is more pessimistic than i am but i'm still not like optimistic so um yeah it's we're 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 in a rough time and it you know, the last couple days, it feels like the news hasn't been accelerating at a greater and greater pace. But, you know, stuff's still been going on, but that's just background noise these mm-hmm. days. So we'll see. Man, you know, I, there was even another article that was dumped about Trump's taxes, and I didn't even get to read that yet. Like, ugh, just so much mm-hmm. news. Yeah, like, we haven't even covered the taxes on the podcast. That could be its own whole show. Well, yeah, there was the there was the taxes. There was the Trump getting COVID. Everybody else getting COVID. Um, cases are rising. I mean, what else has happened in these last two weeks? I feel like more has happened. Um, it's the just been so much. And, yeah. Oh, yeah, the debate. Um, and the vice presidential debate, which I didn't watch, but I didn't watch um, the vice presidential debate. Who the fuck would subject themselves to that? Yeah, <laughs> especially if you you watched the first one. And granted, I'm sure it was not as bad, but just why? Yeah. Um. So I don't know. I feel like 
I feel like to really kick it in gear, we need some sort of international thing coming oh, at us, too. Oh, fuck. Here's, no, here's the other big thing. The FBI thwarted a plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan. Oh, yeah, that also happened. Yeah, yeah. that's fucking scary. That's, that terrifies me, honestly. Yeah, you know, the, the threat of... Uh, left-wing terrorism is almost a theoretical whereas um right-wing um political violence um is always on the cusp of almost happening um in a very real way like there was the guy you know there's like oh no some people show up at my door to protest things or i can't eat at a nice restaurant as a republican uh, politician oh man the left sucks but then like some right wing guy mails a bunch of uh, defective pipe bombs to like a whole bunch of democratic uh, politicians yeah or, yeah that did happen or try to kidnap a democratic governor for having you know I'll, I'll admit Michigan has had some of the more restrictive COVID-19 you know, restrictions, but, um, does that amount to needing to be kidnapped? I would say no, no. nothing does. <laughs> there is nothing that a governor could do that would, we're talking about insurrection and potential assassination. Like, come on, yeah. that's, that's yeah. the law and order that we need to be worried about. We need to <laughs> yeah. be protecting elected officials from being, threatened with violence for enacting policies that a couple of people don't like. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh some dark times. And it's just a roller coaster and like Evan and I were talking about in the pre-show that isn't recorded and it only makes sense to us. Life just <laughs> keeps on going. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh boy, yes. And somehow it keeps going with all of this stuff. Um, that's been happening. It has been a hell of a year and there's still a whole lot of year left. Mm -hmm. Um, these last two weeks have been exhausting. Um, so I think that's, I think that's it on our, unless you got some more words to say. I just have one last thing that I want to talk about because we're talking about democracy and we're talking about voting and I know there's a lot of people out there who are not enthused by being told to vote or by the power of the vote. And on some level, I get it. I really get it. I get that for a lot of people, Joe Biden and Donald Trump are both not the president that you want to see. I'm right there with you. Biden was only like my eighth string pick from the Democratic primaries or something. I fully get it. And I do not expect a Joe Biden presidency to solve anywhere close to all of the social ills that I see in the world. But to say that you're not going to vote is just baffling to me because it's to say that there's no daylight between the two candidates when clearly the contrast in this election, maybe more than others past, is very stark in terms of what can be done for the country. And even if Biden's vision is much more modest than I would like, it's at least pulling in a direction that I can 
even understand as a direction. Yeah. It is the, the absence of chaos. And to me, that is certainly worth doing the bare minimum of casting my fucking vote. And by extension, you know, there's, I think there is a lack of, there's it's sort of disingenuous to pretend that some people are that voting fixes everything you know there's all these memes about how you know oh we uh, can, can we get some uh, stimulus relief republicans no democrats no but vote black lives matter ha 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 and you know there's i think there's some truth to that critique that that you know we have to do more than vote we have to organize and we have to be willing to strengthen institutions within our communities that will actually bring about the change that we want to see. That's all true. But none of that means that you shouldn't vote as well. Yeah. And that's, that's my takeaway. Just because the, the value, like the weight of voting may be overstated doesn't mean that it also still matters. It doesn't mean that the weight of voting is zero. Yeah. And you I don't think there's any rational way to claim one that voting doesn't matter. And I think there's no rational way to claim that the choice between these two leaders doesn't matter because the way they govern will be fundamentally different. Yeah. And even in, you know, I don't think that Joe Biden is fantastic on the issue of race. I think that he has a lot of you know, sort of soft bigotry that's still around. But to say that it's equivalent to what we've seen from Trump and the Proud Boys and all of that bullshit, mind-boggling to me. It's not hell, the same. Even, even it's to not say, equivalent. Even to say that their lies are equivalent. Yeah, like, exactly. You know, when Joe Biden lies, it's kind of like the aw shucks, you know, politician way where it's like, you know, going back to fatcheck.org in 2011, it's like, oh, he said a thing that was a mischaracterization of a thing and he overflated the statistic of thing. Like, that is way different than just saying the complete opposite of the truth with conviction. Like, the, the Donald Trump bully lie to just trying to make people confront with the exact opposite with the truth mm-hmm. that you know that he does like you know we saw in the debate like um trump just does not cannot behave civilly and is absolutely bonkers like he had an hour long interview with Rush Limbaugh and Rush Limbaugh wasn't even like going along with it <laughs> and like, and, you know, there is, you know, the debate is actually one of the first times where um, some people who were supporting him got to actually see his the way he is, um, because there's a whole lot of media out there that does a lot of sanitization of him um, mm-hmm. that makes it more palatable. Um, you know, don't go into the crazy Twitter because the crazy Twitter thing is just kind of an afterthought. Um, but you know, it, 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 to me, it's just absolutely cut and dry. And then also Trump's authoritarian leanings, um, 
you know, just the fact that he wants to delegitimize the election. Um, mm-hmm. That is definitely scary. Ponders out loud or posits out loud quite frequently that he should be owed another term. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, it, whereas, you know, there was a freak out because one time Barack Obama made a joke that if he were to run for a third term, he would win. Not ever saying that he would or he would try or wouldn't he oh, that be was great a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Just uh, just an assertion one time. And Trump does it all the time. And uh, yeah, it's it's pretty cut and dry for me, too. So that's that is the note that I want to conclude on. The election is going to be a shit show, but it's not going to be made better by sitting it out. Yeah, and hopefully you understand all the things that are coming together to make this crazy. But yeah, Evan, you uh, want any final words? I, I had my final words. Okay. I'm good. All right. <laughs> this this is like theme song on the way out final words well anyway i'd like to thank you all for listening um thanks for listening um thank anthony hish for the music but anyway my name's joe hicks and mine's evan kelly i hope that we hope that you've been adequately informed